it's good to be back with you. This morning we are going to be in John 11, and this sermon has been in the bulletin, I think it's three weeks now, so you finally, finally get to hear it. Uh, but if you would uh, begin reading along with me in verse 1, it says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, it has been said that the Bible is out of date. How can a collection of writings written between 2,000 and 3,500 years ago, how can it be relevant to any circumstances that we experience today? How can it still have significance across cultures and across time? But what do we just read in this passage? Uh, we, we saw a, uh, a family with a loved one who was sick. And what do they do? What's their first instinct? To make an appeal to Jesus. And who among us has not been in such circumstances with a loved one, maybe in the last two years, maybe even before that? We've had uh, coronavirus with us uh, for close to two years now, and many of us have experienced the virus firsthand. Regardless of how your views on the, the virus uh, land, and regardless of your views on the response to the virus, I think at, at this point, uh, it's maybe safe to say that we all know somebody uh, who has lost their life uh, as a result. As we come to John 11 this morning, uh, I feel like this this text is all too relevant to our current times. Ultimately, as as we have come to John 11, uh, the big narrative uh, in this chapter uh, is maybe one of the most important events in all of Jesus' ministry, uh, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. This is the, the seventh miraculous sign that Jesus performs in John's gospel. And John was very intentional uh, about the, the miracles that he included uh, in his account of Jesus' life. Uh, there is a progression, and this is intended to be uh, the capstone of those miracles uh, before Jesus himself rises from the dead. Now, this is also uh, the culminating sign. Uh, th- this is uh, what uh, makes the, the determination uh, in the minds of the religious leaders that they have to kill Jesus. If you, if you look ahead to the, the end of the chapter, 
verse 53. Speaking of the Jewish leaders, it says, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And, and realize that we are in between Hanukkah and the, the Passover, between Hanukkah and Easter. Uh, and these are the, the final months of Jesus' life and ministry here on the earth. Somewhere in the in-between time is, is when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And so we are, we are working towards that as we uh, study John chapter 11. But before we get to the, the miracle of Lazarus' resurrection, we, we have to walk through the sadness of his sickness and his death. And this morning, we're going to see Lazarus sick in Bethany, uh, and we're going to see uh, the initial response of Jesus as word comes to him uh, that this one whom he loves is sick and near death. We're going to see how Jesus responds to sickness among those whom he loves. And why does Jesus not act continually to protect his people from sickness? You ever wrestle with that? He has power over life and death, sickness and health. Why does he allow those who are faithful to him to suffer? How does Jesus respond to sickness? And why does he respond the way that he does? That's what we're going to see in these six verses this morning. As we look at this passage, we're going to see that the how and the why behind Jesus' response to sickness among his people. Before we, we dive in, I would love to, to pause and, and pray. Lord Jesus, you, you are sovereign. Lord, we acknowledge that you have power and authority to give life to whomever you will. But Lord, we, we wonder at times. We, we question at times. We, we wrestle why you respond in certain ways. And I pray that your word this morning would bring comfort and encouragement to our souls. That you would help us to understand how you act and why you act as you do. Lord, use this time, use this passage of Scripture to bring our hearts and minds upwards to you, to behold you in all your glory, and ultimately to praise and worship you. Lord, please bless our time and guide it now. In Jesus' name. Amen. What we're going to, to see here really kind of breaks down into to two scenes. In verses 1 through 3, uh, we are going to see Jesus uh, with, uh, I'm sorry, verses 1 through 3, we're going to see kind of a, the background uh, to uh, Lazarus uh, and his sickness. Uh, and then in verses 4 through 6, we're going to, to see the immediate response of Jesus and his disciples uh, when they hear this news. Now, but we could also uh, say that verses 1 through 3, uh, we see a faithful family appealing to Jesus. And these are the background to the story. Uh, Lazarus is in this village of Bethany, and Bethany is uh, in the, the southern part uh, of Israel. It's about two miles 
uh, east of Jerusalem along the, the road uh, to Jericho. And if you remember from several weeks ago, uh, Jesus uh, had to, to run for his life. Uh, and so he is out in the wilderness about 75 miles north. Uh, so whoever brings this news to Jesus has traveled a long way. Now They, they have uh, invested some time and energy to get to him. And uh, Lazarus has two sisters that are mentioned in this text. Mary, I'm sorry, Mary. Mary and Martha. That's what happens when you try to merge their names. Mary and Martha. Uh, and the, the way that, that Mary is identified in verse 2, it, it's, it's almost uh, assumed uh, that John uh, is writing, or Jesus is, is clarifying, uh, that, that something that Mary has, uh, is familiar uh, or well-known to have done. Uh, and uh, be, it's identified in verse 2 that she was the one uh, who washed, uh, washed Jesus' feet with her tears. Right? And uh, what's interesting about this is this actually comes later on in John's Gospel, in John chapter 12. Uh, and so clarifying uh, that fact now uh, seems to imply that uh, this was a, a well-known act uh, by Mary and that these two sisters were, were well-known in the early church. Uh, and it's a little bit of a foreshadowing of what was to come. And uh, you may be also be familiar with these two sisters because they're, they're mentioned in Luke chapter 10. In, in a well-known narrative, Luke chapter 10, if you want to turn there with me to verse 38 uh, through 42. Now, Jesus comes to their home, and this is what takes place. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, now, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. Uh, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Uh, so we are uh, somewhat familiar with these two sisters, uh, and having a brother who is sick, uh, uh, these the sisters send a, a very simple message to Jesus. And, and their message communicates much about uh, the relationship that Jesus has with this particular family. Uh, they say, uh, Jesus, and, and the, the Greek it says, Lord or Sir, behold, one, the one whom you love is sick. How did Jesus come to have such a close relationship uh, with Lazarus and Martha and Mary? Right? How does it uh, come about that these two sisters are willing to, to speak to Jesus, say, hey, this, our brother, the one whom you love, is ill? And we're not told the, the details of uh, how uh, they form such a close relationship with Jesus. But obviously there is a great concern uh, here and a great uh, Reality that there is an, there is an intimacy uh, between Jesus and this family, now, which which is a good reminder that there is so much more to Jesus than what we actually have written down for us in the four gospel accounts. Uh, he has this these relationships that we uh, know very little about. They're very important to him. 
But the emphasis here is that there is a, a faithful family in the middle of a significant trial. And we, Jesus uh, is informed that Lazarus is sick, and, and they weren't bringing news that he had the sniffles, right? Like, hey, Lazarus woke up with a sore throat this morning, and we're a little bit concerned. Uh, could, Jesus, could you, could you eradicate that for us? That, that was not the, the message. The implication is that uh, Lazarus is near death whenever the messenger sent out uh, to come to Jesus. And the, prob- the situation is probably even more urgent now that the messenger has finally arrived with Jesus. And the expectation uh, is for uh, Jesus to do something now. Right? Uh, and what's interesting is that the sisters don't say, come quickly and come urgently. Uh, there, there may have been an expectation that, that Jesus could heal Lazarus from a distance, uh, even as he did th- with the nobleman's son uh, back in John chapter 4. If you remember that, uh, that story where uh, there's a, a nobleman who lived in uh, Capernaum, and he walks 15 miles to get to Jesus in Cana uh, of Galilee. Uh, and uh, he pleads with Jesus to return to him to, to Capernaum to, to heal his son. And Jesus says... He's healed. Just go back. And that was a test of that man's faith uh, to, to go all the way back, just simply trusting in the word of Jesus that his son would be healed. Uh, and he, he gets back and he finds out that his son was healed at that very hour that Jesus had spoken. Jesus healed that boy from 15 miles away. What's to prevent him from heal, healing Lazarus from 75 miles away, right? If you can heal from that far away, what's another 60 miles? But there is, there is an urgency to the request. There is a desire for Jesus to come and heal. We always have that question in our hearts whenever we or a loved one are sick, right? Our, our simple request, we may not speak it verbally, but our desire in our hearts when we are sick, especially really, really sick. Lord, heal me. Don't make me walk through this trial. Or if it's a loved one, say, Lord, heal him. Heal her. What a question. And every one of us has asked it at some point. Why won't you heal here and now? And if we haven't asked it yet, we undoubtedly will in the future. And the point that that jumps off the the page here is that even those who love Jesus can and will be sick in this life. Even possibly to the point of death. It's a man named Nabil Qureshi, who, who grew up in the United States as a devout Muslim. Uh, and uh, he uh, went to, to college, and when he was in college, uh, he engaged in, in many debate, interfaith debates, uh, arguing uh, on the behalf of Islam against Christianity. Uh, and over time, uh, he uh, developed a friendship with one of those that he had debated against, uh, a Christian. Uh, and those two friends had a long, uh, multi-year uh, debate uh, about the truth claims of Islam and Christianity. Uh, and, and the culmination of that debate, Nabil Qureshi, 
came to, to place his faith and his trust in Jesus rather than in Allah. Uh, and uh, then his debating didn't cease there. Uh, he continued to uh, debate, but this time he was no longer on the side of Islam, but now he's debating on behalf of Christianity. Uh, he is going and engaging and uh, proclaiming the, the truth of the gospel, the truth about Jesus to others. Uh, a faithful apologist, a renowned and prominent apologist. But then in, in August of 2016, he announced that he had stage four stomach cancer. And a little over a year later, on September 16th, 2017, Nabil Qureshi passed away at the age of 34, leaving behind a wife and daughter. Sometimes we as Christians feel, okay, we may not speak this, but we feel it. We feel that we should be protected from certain things. You know, we have this unrealistic expectation that we and our loved ones will not have to experience serious sickness and suffering in this life. We may not actively proclaim a gospel of health and wealth, but when we or someone that we love are struck with severe illness, what do we immediately begin to do? We question God. God, are you sure you got this right? Why are you allowing this to happen? We begin to, to question God's character. We begin to question God's love. And when this happens, when we begin to, to march down that road of, of questioning God, uh, that, is, uh, that is telling us something about our own hearts and minds. It's revealing something to us that there is a disconnection between the theology that we proclaim and the theology that we practice. And what we tr really truly believe uh, is not demonstrated in the answer that we give for the test. But what we truly believe is, is demonstrated uh, in how we respond to the circumstances of life. And we must come to know and truly believe that Christians are not spared from sickness and suffering in this life. We must come to know and truly believe that our loved ones are not supernaturally protected from sickness and suffering in this life. God's grace in the gospel promises forgiveness of sins, not exemption from trials. Bishop J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, But sickness, we must always remember, is no sign that God is displeased with us. Nay, more it is generally sent for the good of our souls. It tends to draw our affection away from this world and to direct them to things above. It sends us to our Bibles and it teaches us to pray better. It helps to prove our faith and patience and shows us the real value of our hope in Christ. It reminds us early that we aren't to live always and tunes and trains our hearts for great change. Uh, let us uh, be patient and cheerful then when we are laid aside by illness. And let us believe that the Lord Jesus loves us when we are sick, no less than when we are well. 
What should we do when we or a loved one fall sick? And again, at this point in time, this is, this is not a, a hypothetical if, this is really just a when. When in your life are you going to be very ill? Just a matter of time. When in your life are you going to have loved ones who are very ill? How are we to, to respond in such circumstances? Well, we must care for that loved one. Whoever is sick, we are called to minister to them. We, we should seek the best medical care we can attain for them. We should do all that we can. But to quote J.C. Ryle again, says, But in all our doing, we must never forget that the best and ablest and wisest helper is in heaven at God's right hand. We actively minister to those who are sick. We get the best medical attention that we can. And then we pray. 1 Peter 4:19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let us do good, but let us also entrust our souls to the one who made us. We must pray. We must appeal to Jesus, even uh, as uh, Mary and Martha did on behalf of Lazarus. They sent urgent messengers to Jesus. In the middle of sickness, we must remember that Jesus is the one who has given us life and breath and everything, that he is the one who knit us together in the womb. And he is the one who has numbered our days from birth to death. We should entrust ourselves to him. What we see here in verses 1 through 3 is a faithful family appealing to the Savior, asking him to intervene in their circumstances. And then in verses 4 through 6, we're going to see how Jesus responds. It's a a loving Savior responds to the family. And in verses 4 through 6, there are going to be three ways that the Savior responds to sickness. If you look again with me in verse 4, it says, But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Phrase it this way, that Jesus always responds to sickness for the glory of God. That his immediate response uh, at this news of Lazarus' illness, uh, he says, this is not going to culminate. This is not going to to end in death. Uh, And you may kind of initially question that. You're like, but Lazarus does die. So, So how does that work? Uh, Jesus is looking beyond that. He's looking at what this is going to to culminate in. Uh, and the, Lazarus's death is not going, or this illness is going to to culminate not in uh, death uh, for Lazarus, because at the end of the story, uh, at the end of this chapter, Lazarus is going to be alive and well. Uh, the 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 culmination of uh, this sickness is going to be God's glory. Uh, and a similar statement was made back in John chapter 9, uh, the, the very beginning of the, uh, the, the narrative of uh, the man who was healed uh, from uh, being blind from birth. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. 
And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. God will be glorified through Jesus uh, in this sickness. Uh, And the glory of the Father and the Son uh, are connected, and indeed they are inseparable. Right? Jesus says, uh, this is going to be for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Both the Father and the Son uh, are going to be uh, uh, glorified in this situation. And when it speaks of glorified in this situation, it's not talking about just the, the bright, shining glory uh, that, that Jesus and uh, the Father have and, and uh, possess. Now, it is speaking about uh, the glory of Jesus' self-disclosure. In these events, Jesus is going to have the opportunity to demonstrate who he is. He's going to have the opportunity uh, to demonstrate his power and his authority over life and death. Uh, And uh, as he uh, is revealing who he is, uh, as the Son reveals himself, uh, he's also teaching us and instructing us about who God the Father is. Uh, This is the the theme of John's gospel, right? If you want to know what God the Father is like, who should we look to? The the Son. John chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. But He, speaking of Jesus, He has made Him known. We understand who God is by looking at His Son, Jesus. And what is seen here is that Jesus responds to sickness, not according to human desires and human plans. Right? The sisters are writing to Jesus. Jesus, Lazarus is sick. Implication, come quickly. We need you down here. Jesus doesn't act according to the the plans of humanity. He acts according to the plan and purpose of God. Because his objective in sickness is to bring glory to God. And the plan and purpose of God for each individual uh, is something that is uh, secret. We don't know what it is. It's going to be revealed in time for each and every one of us. But uh, the plan that he has for each of us is known only to him. And and I've said it in the past, we each have an individual sanctification plan uh, filed away in heaven. uh, And things are going right according to that plan. And sometimes... Uh, the plans of God uh, is to, uh, in sickness, is, is to bring about healing and restoration. All right, that's what we see here in John 11. Lazarus is, is sick. Uh, it's going to be an illness that's going to take his life for a time, but Jesus is going to arrive on the scene. Uh, he's going to say, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus is going to come back from the dead. Sometimes that is what takes place. Some of you have probably experienced a loved one on the brink of death. Now, about 14 years ago, uh, one of the pastors at our ascending church, uh, Randy Linen, he came up and was a guest speaker several years ago. Uh, well, it was about 14 years ago, uh, he had what is known as an aortic dissection. Uh, and so uh, it's a very serious condition. Uh, your uh, blood veins and arteries are made up of multiple layers of tissue. Uh, And in an aortic dissection, uh, there is a tear in some of those layers. uh, And uh, it's like somebody unzips your vein. 
Uh, so it's not like somebody snips the side of it. Uh, it's somebody uh, weakens it during the entire length. Uh, and so if you have, you know, ten layers of tissue and six of them go, uh, what's holding it together is just those four little uh, layers of tissue. Uh, and if you think about it, what happens if those other four layers go? Right? How do you, how do you stop that type of bleeding that, that runs the length of your aorta? So, so Randy had an aortic dissection, and so he was in the hospital for weeks. They had to keep his, his blood pressure under control because if his blood pressure goes up, puts pressure on the aorta, major problems and situations. So, so Randy's in the hospital. Guess what his family does? Gets the word out. Pray for Randy. Please. Go to the Savior on His behalf. So family and friends, the whole church, uh, and many, many others, as the, as the, the network uh, spanned across uh, America and even around the globe, praying for Pastor Randy. And God was very gracious and very merciful to allow Randy to live, to come out of the hospital to begin to live a normal life. A couple years ago, he had a major surgery to repair all of that. But when Randy was uh, recovered, when he was able to, to leave the hospital, who got the glory? God. If you, if you were to ask Randy about that experience, who's he going to uh, proclaim to you? Is he going to talk about his strength? His might is going to speak about God's goodness and faithfulness. All who are familiar with that give glory to God for bringing healing. And again, sometimes that is God's plan. For, to, to bring someone to the, the brink of death and then to, to heal and restore them. But other times, it's, that's not within the, God's plan. Even as we, we looked at Nabil Qureshi earlier. And what we see is that if in the midst of sickness, Jesus is always working for his glory and the glory of the Father, it means that we are not necessarily guaranteed an easy life. Jesus working for God's glory means that we will not be spared from suffering and sickness. That's not the goal. We want that to be the goal, right? If we can start a, a, a petition, God, can you change the purpose so that we, so that we just fly through life easy? Right? Again, that, that's our, our secret hidden desires of what we want. But ultimately, this is how God is working and acting in his creation. And yet, if this is how Jesus is working... This is not cause for despair. This is uh, what gives purpose to our suffering, and it guides our response to sickness. Uh, and as Christians, uh, our experience of sickness and suffering should be very different and distinct uh, from the response of those who do not look to Jesus in faith. We should respond very differently because those who do not know Jesus, their goal is what? Survival. Right? And, and you could say survival is uh, uh, their preeminent concern. 
But when, when sickness comes into our bodies or into our homes, what should be our goal? The glory of God. John Piper, who is himself a cancer survivor, wrote a little pamphlet entitled, Don't Waste Your Cancer. It's very short, 15 pages long, uh, 11 points, and it's available for free uh, on the Desiring God website. Uh, I'll mention four of the, the 11 points here. But he says this, he words each of them in terms of, we waste our cancer if... He says this, we waste our cancer if we think that beating cancer means staying alive rather than cherishing Christ. We waste our cancer if we grieve as those who have no hope. Again, we sh- our experience of sickness and suffering should be very different from those who do not have hope in Christ. We waste our cancer if we let it drive us into solitude instead of deepening our relationships with manifest action. What, what can be a tendency when we are suffering? We isolate ourselves. Right? What should we actually do in sickness and suffering? Go to the church. Go to the, the, the body that the Lord has placed us in. Communicate with others. Develop deeper relationships. And the last one that I'll mention, we waste our cancer if we fail to use it as a means of witness to the truth and glory of Christ. And that's what we see here in John chapter 11. This illness that Lazarus is having to, to uh, experience right here and right now in our text is going to, to culminate in one of the most powerful uh, witnessing opportunities in Jesus' ministry. Right? Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are well known in Bethany. And Bethany is two miles from Jerusalem. Right? Do you think word is going to get back into the city? Lazarus, who was in the grave four days, he was smelly. We can verify his death. Jesus brought him to life. And the response to that, Jesus' opponents said, we gotta, we got to make sure this guy dies now. If he can bring people to life, we got to kill him. That's the conclusion that they come to. What an opportunity for witness when sickness comes. But some of us might see this manner of response by Jesus as a discouragement rather than an encouragement. You might begin to question, right? is Jesus just using me for his glory? Right? That may not be a, a comfort. He's just in this for himself. But the very next statement in verse 5, that, that should answer the question, that objection that some might pose. If you look at verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. A very simple verse. Say that Jesus always responds to sickness with love. Uh, the Apostle John here is, is framing and explaining Jesus' response. And he doesn't just say, Jesus really, really loved this family. He, he does say that, but. but 
the Apostle John takes the time to do what? To mention each sibling by name. He loved Lazarus. He loved Martha. He loved Mary. He loved Lazarus, whom he would raise from the dead. He loved Mary, who was devoted to him. And he loved Martha all the same, even though she had a tendency of getting distracted. Right? Every believer is a child of God, adopted into the family of God by the blood sacrifice of Jesus, the Son of God. Again, that's what we saw earlier in John's Gospel. John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And as a father, God loves each and every one of his children by name. Fathers, do you care when your children get sick? Talk to me. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So why do you question whether God is concerned when you get sick? Why do you wrestle with that? You're his child. You have been adopted into his family. You can be sure that he is concerned and that he cares when any of his children get sick. Earlier, we saw a faithful family appealing to Jesus. And that is indeed the response that we are called to emulate whenever we or a loved one are sick. We are to to bring our cares and our concerns, all of our appeals, we bring to the Savior. And as we do so, we should remember that He will act accordingly, according to His secret will for each of our lives, that will only be revealed in time. But in the middle of sickness and suffering, we must also be convinced that Jesus loves us. Even as the Apostle John emphasizes that so much here, we have to be convinced of this truth. Uh, And not just in a Sunday school children's song type of way. Yes, the Bible tells you so, but do you really believe it? Are you absolutely convinced of it? Not just when uh, you are experiencing his blessing, but also when you are walking through trials. Are you absolutely convinced of this truth that Jesus loves you and died for you and that he will care for you all of your days. If you are wrestling with that, I would encourage you to to recall and, and to labor to reflect upon the covenant love that Christ has for his people. All right, last Sunday we celebrated the Lord's table. What is that a remembrance of? His sacrifice, what He has done for us. He lived and He died and He rose again so that we could be forgiven and cleansed and reconciled and adopted into His family. Reflect upon John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Reflect upon Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us 
And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The logic there is, man, it takes a lot just to die for a good person, right? But Christ died on our behalf when we were sinners. When we were in rebellion against Him, He died for us. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If, if God sent His Son to die for you, is He going to let you uh, be squandered? Is He going to hold anything back? Or is He going to, to care for you? Is He going to love you all of your days? Even if that means that you experience sickness for His glory. C.S. Lewis put it this way, The great thing to remember is that though our feelings come and go, God's love for us does not. But Jesus responds to sickness always for His glory and always in love for us. But then finally, in verse 6, Jesus sometimes responds to sickness by waiting. Verse 6 says, So when He heard... That Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And the Apostle John emphasizes Jesus' love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus in verse 5, and he builds a connection into verse 6. Why did Jesus wait? Why did he deliberately stay exactly where he was for two more days? What's the connection? It is because he loved them so much. It was not that Jesus had urgent business in the wilderness that he couldn't just pull himself away from. That's not what kept him in uh, in the north. But why did Jesus wait before going down to the village of Bethany? I think a part of it is... uh, Jesus, again, doesn't, doesn't operate according to human timetables. He's not going to be manipulated. We saw this earlier in John's Gospel, John chapter 2, when his mom comes and says, Hey, they're running out of wine. Can you do something? He says, Woman, what what does that have to do with me? John chapter 7, his brothers come up and say, Hey, you need to use this march up to Jerusalem as a a publicity stunt. You need to, to utilize this. And he says, That's not how this is supposed to happen. And then in the here and now, what we're looking at, Jesus is going to operate on God's time and according to God's plan. But additionally, I think uh, Jesus waiting two extra days is going to heighten and clarify the significance of this miracle. Waiting ensures that Lazarus has been dead long enough so that uh, resurrection is not to be confused with resuscitation. Right? Uh, Later on, when they're going to open up uh, the the tomb uh, of Lazarus, there's going to be a smell. And that's not because he was asleep, it's because he was dead. And everybody who's there is going to to experience that. But it does not take a a great imagination to see the impact that Jesus' waiting would have had upon Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Jesus waits two extra days. And I think during those, those two extra days, Lazarus is going to, to languish in his illness and he's going to perish. How do you think those, those two days uh, were for Martha and for Mary? Their brother is sick, right? Again, those of you who have been sick, a single day feels like an eternity 
at times. So waiting uh, another two days and Jesus departs. But then what we see later on in John chapter 11 uh, is that uh, when he arrives in town, Lazarus has been buried for four days. So there's, there's a six day window here. It's a long walk down to Bethany. A six-day window. Jesus waiting. Mary and Martha during those those days, they would have watched their brother decline. They would have grieved at his death. They would have prepared him for burial, laid him rest in the tomb. And undoubtedly in that time, they would have wept and wondered why Jesus hadn't worked when they wanted him to. And this delay, again, it would have been hard. But also, what we see is it would have been good. It has been said that waiting time is never wasted time. That waiting upon the Lord serves to grow our faith both as we wait and lift up our prayers to Him. And then if and when the Lord answers our prayers, we are encouraged. But we must learn how to wait upon Christ in terms of sickness and in times of suffering. To wait upon Him in prayer, trusting, believing, hoping, knowing that He loves us and that He is going to work according to His plan. Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. His delay does not mean abandonment. As John Calvin observes, let believers learn to suspend their desires if God does not stretch out His hand to help as soon as they think necessity requires. Whatever may be His delays, He never sleeps and He never forgets His people. Amen? As we look at these first six verses in John 11, we see how Jesus responds to sickness. Always for His glory, always with love, and sometimes by waiting. And the waiting is for our good in addition to being for His glory. And yet again, none of us naturally like that time of waiting. Times of waiting tend to be seasons of adversity, for us. And Puritan Thomas Lies has this to say about such times. The times of adversity are seasonable times to trust in God. When we have no bread to eat or water to drink, but only affliction and astonishments, this is a time not for over-grieving, murmuring, sinking, desponding, despairing, but for trusting. And in a tempest, a believer must cast his anchor upward. God often brings His people into such a condition that they do not know what to do. He does this that they might know what He can do. God is with His people at all times, but He is most sweetly with them in the worst of times. I, I hope and pray that as we, as we depart from here this morning, that we have a, a settled determination in our hearts and in our minds, that we are able to trust Jesus in season and out of season. 
uh, that we are able to look to Him in faith and call upon Him uh, in times of health and in times of sickness. That we must believe that He perfectly and sovereignly superintends not only the affairs of nations, but also our family and then of us as individuals. And if we or a loved one gets sick, it is because in His perfect love and in His infinite wisdom, He's going to use that sickness for our good and for His glory. And if He delays in responding to our prayers, we can wait. Not easy, but we can wait knowing that He is still working to accomplish His perfect plan and purpose to bring glory to His name and to shape us and mold us, to conform us to being more like Him. So in times of trial, suffering, and sickness, may we cast our anchors upward. Amen?